Welcome to the People's Pitch, the one and only podcast dedicated to covering your most or least favorite soccer team, Minneapolis City SC. As usual, I am Nate, and I'm joined by the Timon to my Pumbaa, John Bismarck. John, I assume that your rage has subsided and you, uh, you're able to form complete sentences tonight? Uh, I'm going to try, Nate. I've had all the feels <laughs> since yesterday, and I am almost to the acceptance stage. So I hope doing this show um, with you will help me get there. But I would also be okay with taking a step back into the anger phase, which is probably the likely outcome of us talking more about this. All right, all right, I can dig it. Well, we got a good, uh, we got some good show tonight. Uh, last week, Minneapolis City announced a new kit partner, and we're going to talk about who they are and when we can expect expect to see a fresh look for our team. Um, we want to welcome back Summit. Our flagship sponsor signed on for another year. But uh, why do we need sponsors anyway? Well, we'll tell you. And, of course, we're going to get to the elephant in the room. Last night's performance of the U.S. men's national team. And what we think it means for U.S. soccer. Of course, we'll talk a bit about that upcoming U.S. Open Cup match. So you have the details and you're ready to rock. Uh, But first, it is no secret that our inaugural kit manufacturer, Impact Prowear, while... um, Partnering to create three great looks for us, they left a lot to be desired when it came to order fulfillment and customer service. So the club has been pretty open. Even I think last year at the member meeting at the local, they brought it up already that um, the club has been in the market for a new kick, a new kit partner, and some big names were tossed around at that meeting. I think Kappa, uh, maybe Joma. Anyway, uh, actually, I can go through the list: uh, New Balance, um, Hummel. You know, some of the, like the, the subtype brands that are more popular in Europe, um, yeah. not in the U.S. We, they, they, we kind of moved past like the Nikes and Adidas and, and kind of focused on, on those type of brands as well as some, some smaller brands, you know, along the impact uh, kind of, you know, the, the impact level of, uh, of providers. Yeah, and in the end, we did end up going with a relatively unknown name. <clears throat> Let's get to know our new kit partner, Stimulus Athletic. John Stimulus is local. They're founded by a former Minnesota United striker. Uh, I'm not even going to pretend to know how to pronounce his name. And that had to it's be... uh, Giesen Mura. Giesen. All right. I would have said Giesen, so that was close. Uh, that had to be a part... So, of course, being local and kind of that Minnesota United uh, history had to be a part of that decision. But what all went into the club's criteria for choosing a new partner? I think, like, you know, I threw around some of those names that we, we had talked about talk to and and you know one one a for us clearly is a, is a pricing structure right yeah we we operate on on low budgets compared to some of our our um, other regional and you know national competition so we have to come up with you know areas to cut costs and that doesn't mean like cutting costs from a um, 
you know, a perspective of quality. It's more so the cost of fulfillment, the ability to be able to provide customization. You know, when I talked about not talking to the Nikes and Adidas's of the world, it's because you get package A, B, or C, and and you change your color and you put your crest on it and your league badge, and that's pretty much it. Yeah. Whereas you know you mentioned before, we had three part, we had three really cool jerseys that we and and a bunch of cool uh, merchandise. You know some of the player uh, or some of the coaching jackets and and things along those lines that that we did. But we, we looked at you know what other options are out there, and knowing that we support local, whether it's our partnerships with Talisman or you know our on the field product of having only local only local talent, or even just. Um, you know, having local sponsorship, it's it was all about trying to find someone that would fit within that, and we were lucky to find Stimulus. So uh, we're really happy to have them on board, and um, we really think that there's going to be some some great things to come with our, our new looks. Nice, nice. Uh, what are the benefits to Stimulus? Like you said, we can be pretty free with that kit design. Um, we'll just let her rip with no patterns, no templates. Is there any clue who we're working with to get some d- new designs? Yes, we're working. Uh, we're not going to name any names, but we're working with uh, a pretty decent group of designers, including some of the internal options that we have. So some design thoughts from myself and from from Sarah and Dan. Uh, you know, some of the players threw in some ideas. So really, kind of casting a broad net with yeah. no options a bad option right now. But as you know, being a member, Nate that uh, the, the members have a chance to vote. So there'll be three options for home in a way that uh, the members get to cast their vote on. Um, and then ultimately the member board making the final decision based off of, uh, you know, what the, the broader membership group likes. So that's the hot question on everyone's mind, I guess, is like, when are we going to see these new kits? We're keeping, and of course people want to know we're keeping that pink, right? Uh, pink is definitely there. It was, you know, right now without, you know, tipping our cap to, or tipping our, our hand to, to this topic, it's, you know, we're, we were also struggling with the fact of, do we bring in pink into our home whites Yeah, in some way or another? Um, but a ways it's kind of our thing. People have copied it. If the, the, the growing number of away pink jerseys around the world seems to have increased since yeah, two years ago. Right. So, um, you know, Juventus did it first, I think, uh, in Napoli. But, you know, we brought it over to the States as kind of our our flagship for our, our way. And there's nothing worse than having a team roll in in pink and beat you at home. Right. Yeah, that was the that's the theory. <laughs> right. So, yes, pink will definitely be there for the for the awake it and, and perhaps um, in some of the design options, maybe bringing in that a little bit into our, our home whites as well. All right, sweet, sweet. Well, I can't wait, uh, you know, less than a month until we see some new options. And uh, if you're not a member, it's a good reason to buy a membership because you get the first look at potential city kits for 20, uh, 2018 season. And the pre-order. Get it before the players even get a chance to wear it. Wow, that's that's amazing. Yeah, so another great reason why Stimulus is a good partner because their willingness to be able to have quick turnarounds for us. Um, and being local, we have someone to talk to that's not on Asian uh, Asian time zone, uh, <laughs> which was uh, became a little bit of a problem, not to mention even just the customer service issues. But I definitely don't want to talk bad about Impact. They were a great partner. 
you know, we, we helped them establish their footprint in the United States and they kind of ran with it. And they, they worked with quite a few clubs after, uh, after we brought them kind of across the, the shores. So thank you very much for the two years and we wish you nothing but the best uh, impact, but stimulus is our, our brand now. Whoop, whoop. So on to a bit more of good news, Nate. By now, you've likely seen that we've re-upped with our title sponsor, Summit Brewing Company, and we are so happy. I'm enjoying one right now, and I've been enjoying one since. <laughs> um, <laughs> quite a few yesterday as I was drowning my sorrows. Um, but a little history of Summit. Six years ago, going through an interesting transition in the title sponsorship of our parent club, Stegman's, uh, where we saw Surly Brewing Company decide to walk away from our partnership after two years. Um, enter the introduction to Summit through local, regional, national beer celebrity and Stegman's legend Jake Keeler, who at the time had a and still does have um, connections throughout pretty much all of the, the major and minor breweries within the state of Minnesota, including nationally. Yeah. Um, but he made the introduction to, to Summit with us. So the first year was kind of a trial we, um, you know, we, we already had Surly, we had, um, <clears throat> excuse me, Two Gingers Whiskey was also one of our sponsors. So, um, we, you know, we, we had Two Gingers sticking around, um, they've since gone, but, um, we had, we have this thing called the annual free beer night charity match, which, which is amazing. Yeah. It, which, yeah, you've been to it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, you were probably at the first one, to be honest, um, where we, we brought someone into the fold. So. We basically told Summit, we have this event, let's partner on it, this is, it, it, the money goes to charity, you know, give us a budget, we'll, we'll, we'll stick with it, we'll show you what we can do for one event, and then if you like it, we'll move forward. Well, they liked it. So, the first free beer charity night was a matchup between Stegman's Old Boys, which was the original Stegman's team, uh, taking on a group of local soccer stars that were put together and captained by Tony Sana. You may have heard of him before, <laughs> if, uh, if you're from around these parts, but... 400 spectators later, lots of free beer consumed, and Asana Foundation walked away with a nice little check, um, and the rest is really history, Nate, <clears throat> which is awesome, because now we we're able to continue moving them from not only just a Stegman sponsorship, but enter City into the frame almost three years ago. It was really a no-brainer for us with our local focus mission that we would offer them a chance to, to bring them into the fold with our semi-professional arm. Yeah, I mean, I think it seems like the big the big difference maker here was... Summit was able to see that we were able to Stegman's organization was able to bring fans into the mix and, you know, draw some crowds. And it wasn't just, a, you know, about putting their name on the kit, but it was about getting getting the word out. Yep. And as you know, too, from, you know, the emails that I send you, we are heavily involved with their, um, you know, their kind of philanthropic efforts, whether it's Second Harvest or Feed My Starving Children or with volunteering at Summit Run events like yep. the Backyard Bash. So yeah. it's we're we're not just taking a check and putting them on our jersey. We're we're true partners and we're showing ROI with having um, Summit involved in all of our member events, pre and post game parties, summits flowing at whatever location we're at. So it truly is a, a, a like for like partnership um, on both sides. So for this season, um, it was a bit, of, a little bit different though, with the popularity of Stegman's and Minneapolis City gaining. Um, there was quite a few uh, unnamed suitors, I guess we, we'll we'll leave it at that, who tossed their hat in the ring and were actually interested in in potentially bidding. usurping Summit. 
Yeah, and bidding on on the title sponsorship. So it was something different. We we didn't necessarily have um, one option. We had multiple options. So we, we were definitely happy that um, you know Summit was able to work within their sponsorship budget. That um, you know the bid that they put in and it allowed them to stay on for a seventh year collectively within our organization. Um, be it Stegman's and and City, um, and we already know they're they're great partners, and, and we love working with them. So if you are of age, do not be a dummy and go buy some Summit and su- support our sponsor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, why do we, like why do we need sponsors like Summit anyway? Why does a club go after and and try to maintain relationships with uh, with someone like Summit? Well, I think you've talked about things like yeah, just Kingsley gen- wants to know in the background. <laughs> yeah, sorry, summit's not for dogs. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, to get to your question, Nate, uh, title sponsorship is kind of a rite of passage within soccer, right? You know, you don't see Manchester United rolling out with just wearing a red jersey like they did in the in the the forties and fifties. No, there's you know there it, it's a, across all leagues, including domestically here. So. You know, we looked for a, a title sponsorship for four cities specifically when we started, and the benefits of not only having them help out financially, um, but also being just a true partner is is really why it's important, at least for for us. So we really we really got to support these guys. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Go right. buy some. Go buy. Go some to your watering hole. Setting. Go to your watering hole and just belly up at the bar. Call an Uber when you're done and just get after it. Word. I heard that. So <laughs> let's talk about uh, less happy news here, John. Uh, a few weeks ago, after that loss against Costa Rica, uh, you and I, we vented a little about the direction the men's national team was heading, uh, if I remember right. And now, uh, after last night's results, it's clear that they were heading straight off the damn cliff. So, I mean, sure, like a number of things had to go wrong for us not to make the World Cup. But a catastrophic s- number. Like, yeah. You, I mean, after so even... much going wrong up to this point, it's not like we can blame missing the cup sorely on the freakish results of last night. No, but they were freakish. <laughs> um, so this result and the fallout seems to have really riled everyone up. And everyone from, what, Taylor Twelman to, to like, half the gung-ho pro-rel, pro-rel diehards on the internet. Has an <laughs> let's idea, let's ha- not say half. It was all every Every single one of them. Yeah. They have an idea how to fix what's broken. And I said it last time we brought this up. Could not qualifying for the 2018 World Cup be the best thing for American soccer in the long run? Well, before I answer, definitely check out Taylor Twelman's rant on SportsCenter. Oh, it's so good. It, it was good, and it was like it's so honest. And you know, you guys know me; I like being honest about soccer. It just totally hit home with me about where we're at and and how we got here. But you're, to to answer your question, Nate, the short answer is yes. This isn't the worst thing, but the long answer is utter disaster. What I loved about it is, you know, he was emotional and he had a hard time articulating his points. Uh, you know, it's because he was just half in the mode of oh my god i can't believe this is happening but um what i what i what i love about his rant and a lot of the other rants from some of the some of the talking heads on espn and and fox and whatnot is that the gloves are off like all of a sudden they stopped towing the party line absolutely us of us soccer is competitive us soccer can can 
is 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 in is in okay shape all of a sudden it's like unmitigated disaster um time to blow it up which i think is kind of interesting well i'll i'll get into things deeper uh from a perspective standpoint and hopefully everyone's got their popcorn and their summit because it's going to get a, it's going to get a little bit a lo- little bit long but it's going to it's going to be different than what i think we've heard from everyone else i yeah. think um so definitely a, a little bit of a unique perspective from us but before we do that nate why don't you talk a little bit about what got us this point in this qualifying cycle yeah man so you know i know the fact is we've been on the brink of elimination from the world cup ever since we got swept in that november in those november qualifying games um losing to mexico 2-1 and then losing to costa rica 4 nothing are what cost clinzy his job right and and that got us started off on the wrong foot in the group and so of course we respond next time out with a ridiculous what like six nothing drubbing of honduras but um and this is a trend it seems like team usa can only respond once per cycle so like time after time we've got a strong return to international play after after a couple months of training and some hype and 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 hand wringing and then we drop points in the second game of every break like in march we crush honduras then we draw to panama or like we return back in june beat trinidad and tobago and then draw mexico uh in september with two bad games we lose to costa rica and then drew drew that honduras squad we had we had drubbed earlier in the year and and that was it like the bed was already made all we had to do was was jump in and fall asleep uh as of and to- totally fell asleep yeah <laughs> like there we at no point in this qualifying stage has the narrative been us has got this right it's always been we are in danger of being disqualified or in danger of losing uh losing out on the world cup and what are we going to do about it and the answer of course is not much like as of mid-september we were the 28th ranked team in fifa no idea how that's the case after after what we've seen over the last few months well right i mean it was like a it was a case of like not a total blackout where we like didn't know what was going on it was like an just an epic brownout where like you remember everything and you know how to fix it but you just go back to getting drunk off crappy tequila uh, you just, yeah <laughs> I mean, over, over the 10 qualifying world cup games we could not consistently beat the 60th the 74th and the 99th ranked fifa teams so like we frankly just on that just on that alone like we deserve to miss the world cup in my mind but you got to be asking yourself how many times have we been told that we're entering this new era of competitive U.S. soccer, and how many times has that promise fallen flat? I mean, it's happened. To, I haven't been a soccer fan for that long, and I feel like that's the only narrative I've been fed since uh, since our exit from the World Cup in 2010. Well, Nate, what was the first World Cup you remember actually like sitting down and watching? 2010. So my first World Cup that I ever watched was in '86. Yeah. That was the last time that U.S. hadn't qualified for the World Cup since this last cycle. So it's not whether you're a new fan or you're an old fan. Like, this is the same type of feeling. Like, I can't believe it. I don't know what to do. Like, am I going to be interested in the World Cup now? Like, for the the people who are diehard soccer fans like ourselves and probably 99.9% of people listening to this, they're going to still watch the World Cup. They're still going to go to their, you know, to their favorite spot and and watch a game specifically the big ones probably instead of just some of the 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 random qualifying or um, early round qualifying pool play yeah but it's just like i honestly don't know what i'm gonna do you know like i I, like do i just go all in on germany because i i'm german like yeah you know like i mean the sad thing is is like 
I remember last World Cup, you and me and Dan and the Stegmans, the Stegmans guys had like that event at the local, and I remember you, the three of us, leaving leaving work and going and like watching the game, and it was a huge, awesome environment. That stuff's yeah. not going to happen. Like we're the whole country is going to be missing out on how awesome that was, and that's pretty sad um, when you think about it. But uh, like you said, this isn't the first time this has happened. Like there is history to this, and I think that is the that is a lot of the source of of your frustration. Yes, <laughs> there is a lot of history. Um, speaking of, like, where do you want to start, Nate? Do you want to start with the like the the deep rooted history behind why I feel this happened? Um, and how it could have been stopped, or do you want to do like short-term effects, yeah, I mean, long-term I think, implications? Like, where do you want to start? I think, like, I'm really curious to get your take on, like you said, you've been watching World Cup soccer since you were like seven years old, maybe six years old. So it's like, what, you know, what are some themes? Like, what, how, how is, how have we been fed the same narrative over and over again, and nothing has changed? So, you know, talk a little bit about that history, kind of from your from your point of view, and then we'll sure. get to get to. What, what effect this particular disqualification is going to have uh, on soccer after that. Sure, absolutely. So get ready to nerd out on soccer, folks. Okay. Here, here it comes. So many moons ago, Nate, our national team was made up of like straight amateur soccer players. What I mean by that, we're talking like people from ethnic communities across the country that were born into the game by their immigrant parents. Yep. So you're, what, what we're basically talking about is like literally the likes of the Milwaukee Bavarians, Chicago Green and White, um, you know, just from a Midwestern perspective, I, I know that players have, have represented our country from those those two clubs, but it spans beyond that, uh, yep. um, you know, from coast to coast um, and, you know, from Canada all the way down to the other ocean. So it literally was just amateur players. Then entered in the fold college players with amateur status before our country really went on the hunt for how to compete at that level. It was like, where are our best players? They're in college. Let's bring them into the fold. Couple them with some of the experienced players at these kind of ethnic clubs or these these like amateur clubs mm-hmm. um, that have a little bit of a storied history and and have a uh, you know the ability to play at a higher level. And and that's where we we took that next step. Yeah, to um, remind people, like for a number of years, amateur clubs were competing with professional clubs nationally. Um, mm-hmm. you, I mean, you just take a look at the the history of the U.S. Open Cup, and you'll see the number of amateur clubs that were winning that thing for so many years. Right, exactly. And then, really, before the period of of kind of after college players were were introduced into it, and even before, you know, these teams at, at a national level were really just built for the Olympics. But as international soccer split off into its own world championships, we saw the need to have one team that is a, on an Olympic cycle and then one that's on a World Cup cycle. Yep. And and that was really at the advent of the World Cup. You know, the Olympics, you know, back in the day were really, you know, the, the pinnacle of sports. And, and we, from a, when I say we, from a soccer community perspective, took that leap into this is our, our own thing now. And we'll, we'll, we'll play in that Olympic arena, but really it's like, who is the best country in the world at soccer? And we're going to define it with the World Cup. Yeah. So following, um, you know, following a long drought of not qualifying until 1990, um, which was the first time the U.S. actually qualified through a cycle and like legitimately made the tournament. um, After that, we dipped in and out of being the top dog in our federation until now, 
Um, we hosted men's and women's World Cups domestically that were very successful. Mm-hmm. And then we created multiple pro leagues, semi-pro leagues, and then top-level amateur leagues got better as a result. So not all negativity, right? No, so you can so you can almost say that the success of, of U.S. soccer in the 90s and early 2000s kind of dragged the rest of American soccer up with it. Yes, absolutely. If in to to kind of harken back to your point, the in 1986, uh, so the the North American Soccer League, where it had you know Pele and Beckenbauer and you know it, George Best and Johan Cruyff and all these great players were coming over to the United States to play, and like soccer was huge in the 70s with the Cosmos and the Kicks, and we really had momentum going. That moment, it, momentum hit like a massive wall going like 100 miles an hour and that was losing the bid in 1986 to mexico to get the world cup so we had all of this momentum domestically and then lost that bid and what we saw happen in 94 with then in 96 or hosting in 94 and then in 96 creating major league soccer really on a coin toss of losing to mexico was stunted because we didn't get that world cup so you know two world cup cycles later we do get the tournament and you see how soccer was fostered in the country but it really could have happened much earlier if we would have gotten that world cup in 86 so i mean that's a little bit about how i mean i get what you're saying that like you know it's interesting to to point out how soccer has developed domestically but really what i want to know is like there is a gap like we're missing actual player and coach development it feels like that was never a priority like is that does that feel like that's true you know it it is true and over the years there's been multiple things that were tried and and they just failed right you know we talked about like can we send a bunch of college kids to go play brazil (laughs) you know the brazil's full national team or or at that time, West Germany or England, you know, these countries with like massive soccer histories, you can't roll out like a whole group of like 18 to 22 year olds and be like, Hey, go over there and win a world cup. So we, you know, we, we tried that, we failed, you know, as those, you know, those amateur type players I mentioned, you know, from clubs like Bavarians and Chicago green and white that were representing our country as they aged out of playing, those were the type of guys that were, then involved in coaching in our country. And, you know, Bob Gansler, who everyone knows, who was the coach of the World Cup team in 1990 through that cycle that got us into our first World Cup since, you know, the, the 50s, um, was a member of the Milwaukee Bavarians. So, you know, like he aged out and he had the knowledge from a, a, a sport perspective to then teach it to younger players who were coming up with the coaching like that yeah and so we, we've, we've tried this before and we've never really like caught the, that lightning in a bottle but you and sent there, out a link today um a plan has been put on paper yes a plan has been put on paper and here's where i i, I go further down the nerd nerd alert here um nate is many of you have have not heard of this um until today including yourself nate as i, I guess yeah. I, I i sent you that that link but um there's one of the major reasons why I, I can't get over how bad things are. It's because there was that plan that was developed and it was thoroughly developed and it was put in place. So in 1998, 
following the World Cup in France, which was an absolute disaster in in U.S. soccer terms, just having the momentum of 94, just breezing through qualification and and coming in with high hopes into increasing the game from a, a national team perspective in the United States, just a massive step back in 98. So the Federation took a step back and commissioned a study that goes by the name of Project 2010, or to some diehard soccer people, the they call it the Q Report. Um, this study was conducted by a man that goes by the name of Carlos Queros. Um, if you're like, who the fuck is this guy? You know, I, I yep. get it. He's, he's well known, but... If you don't, if you're the, the casual soccer fan or picked up the game after he was really kind of involved, um, he still's involved. But um, he's had a storied coaching career. Um, he's coached positions in his native country of Portugal, including two stints as the national team coach of Portugal. Spent a year coaching at Real Madrid and was a technical director and kind of the number two in charge uh, under Sir, Sir Alex Ferguson at Man United for many years. Kind of in the heyday, um, you know, is when kind of he came on. And, and that's when you saw more international flavor instead of the English flavor being Man United's thing. Um, and if you, I, I would encourage you, like, look him up if you want the full details. But to get to, back to what his task was. So he was commissioned uh, to, to put together this study. It's about 114 pages um, of how the, the Federation and U.S. soccer down to the grassroots level all the way up to the, the full national level could restructure to build a team that represents this country and competes with the other soccer powers in tw- 2010. So in 12 years, here is this guy's plan of how he thinks we could do it here with all of the knowledge he has from growing up in another country, from coaching at, at high levels, from playing at high levels, um, really thinking that 12 years, it can be done. So, so why did we... Okay, go, go ahead. Sorry. So the, the outcome is an 11-phase plan called Creating the Dream Team. Um, you know, 11 phases, get it? 11 players, players in the field. Yeah. But this literally is the fucking playbook that... We, we, we could have followed uh, our soccer powers at B that decide, decided at the time when this was fully written to just kind of do some of these things to see if we can maybe expedite the process. Like, let's just throw like some cash over at like one and two out of the out of the plan and then we'll see how that works for two, three years. And then maybe we'll add on this one next when that wasn't the purpose of, of Project 2010. It was here. Here it is. Go all in. Pull off the Band-Aid. Yes. Go all in. And we are now almost eight years past that deadline where we said we will do this study, we'll follow it, and then we will compete for a World Cup title in 2010. And look where we're at. We are really back to ground zero. So why did, I guess, why did we pick this guy? Why did, you know, why did they, they go after an outsider to kind of to kind of analyze the system in general? Well, I think there's multiple benefits that we can we can talk on. The first one is, it will answer your question, completely unbiased opinion and unbiased approach. So um, basically, having this guy come in and knowing his pedigree, they the Federation put a lot of trust in him to not only bring up the positives, but also the negatives. So when you have that unbiased approach at things 
you're going to get things you want to hear and you're going to get things that prop because you, you hired the guy to do the thing but you're also going to get some things that aren't very popular and i think those unpopular things are what we didn't do that we're now seeing are a direct result of where we are today i think another benefit is um him creating the understanding of what is also out there in other countries and that's the cohesion from top down and when i mean top down i mean from the full u.s national team and ussf all the way down to community grassroots soccer and just game awareness Um, also increasing player identification player identification in all their countries is completely different than what we do here and knowing how it's done somewhere else is a major benefit of, of how we can adopt to, to further catch up to parity across, across the globe. And really the list goes on and on, um, but I do want to point out a few pieces of, of this thing that really hit home with soccer in our, in our country. <clears throat> the first one is, uh, and I'm, I'm going to read some of these excerpts, and again, I, we'll, we'll post the link in our, um, in our show description. Um, so you can, yeah. you can take, take the time to read it yourself, but I am going to touch on some things that, um, you know, some folks might find a little bit boring, but this really is, I think an educational piece that most casual soccer fans kind of need, need to learn. So one of the, the points that Carlos made was each time the United States plays a full international, there's a chance for the team, um, that will show improvement, but regardless of the national team's current results, that's back in 98, mm-hmm. um, it does not change the reality of soccer in this country. We cannot be so naive, naive to think that we will win on miracles. If I, if I suffer from an illness, I can take medicine to reduce the pain, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I'll be free of the disease. Likewise, the, uh, the United States could have had good results in previous World Cups, but it might not be the best indicator of whether or not we are progressing in the right direction at home. So the reason why I pointed this out is that is a 100% description of every World Cup we've been in. That's that's exactly what's going on right now is we hope we can do well, you know, in the two games every other month that we play internationally with nothing done in the meantime to develop our players. Right. And it, and and the arrogance of saying, "Oh, well, we made the World Cup and, you know, we're going to go out and we're going to beat Germany, France, and Brazil in the same World Cup." That is not going to happen. We may actually beat one or two of them and we've done that before in the in world cups and you know in in 2002 we made it to the quarterfinals and uh we're a handball not called away from potentially going to the semifinals and playing against a team in 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 south korea that could definitely have been beaten uh, and seen us go into a world cup final so I, i brought that up because back in 98 we still had the same problems that we had today the next point that that this guy makes is during the last stages of preparation for the World Cup in France in 1998, I noticed an arrogance and confidence around the team. In my opinion, this arrogance, which included the notion that the United States could beat anyone in the world at any time, had a negative effect on the overall strategic and psychological <laughs> preparedness of the team. That's just American I that's just American attitude, man. It's like if we're bigger and more athletic, we can and faster, and faster and strong. Yeah. then we should be able to beat these little five, six dudes from, you know, the mountains of Ecuador. And it's just not the case. Right. Exactly. And I think this also speaks to the benefit of why this person was selected to do this, because it, it, this what he's saying is unbiased. It's unbiased and it's not popular in, in American culture. 
specifically in American sport culture. Um, the last topic on this is that, that he notes is there's commonly accepted saying in the world of marketing that under promise and over deliver. And you and I are both in advertising. We probably hear that every day. And you're like, I, I'm sick of hearing that. <laughs> but yeah. going into the 1998 World Cup, U.S. soccer had it the, the uh, had it the other way around. They o- over promised uh, and uh, the masculinity of the reality of the situation was naturally that they under delivered. Mm hmm. And that is where we are currently at today. Well, uh, <laughs> again, like, you know, we, we want to post that full study in, in the in the description so everyone can have a real good read and get real angry like you. Um, <laughs> but like there are just so many themes throughout throughout that report that, like you said, have never been fixed. They were written. 20, it was written 20 years ago. And it's almost like the the attitudes within are are still echoed today so what is you know knowing that nothing really has changed and here we are same place we have been almost every decade for you know the last two or three um what's the short-term term impact on on u.s soccer well um specifically from from what i mentioned or just in general just in general like the not only the loss but like you know will are we able to pivot in a way that they you know, that this, that this report and, and most people feel like we should. I think we're able to pivot when it comes to the, the youth side of soccer and, and how we continue the awareness level of soccer in America. And, you know, you always hear like, well, we have, you know, like 5 million kids signed up for youth soccer and we, we, we only select, we, we can't select 22 that can go and beat Brazil. Like we can barely fucking get people that can beat Trinidad and Tobago. Right. Yep. So it's like, at, at, <laughs> right. It's, it's baffling, but at, at, at the youth level, I think, we, and there's a couple things that I'd like to, to note about that in, the, in this study that we can fix things there quicker than we can fix things at the top. Mm-hmm. Because there's egos at the top, there's there's cash at the top, there's, there's a lot of money all, at the top. Yep. There's all these factors, but um, to kind of go back to that study, um, you know, it was mentioned that a key component of the programs in the restructuring is elite youth level soccer competition, to include interstate competitions at the under 14, 16, and 18 levels, and a national youth professional soccer league at the U19 level, with the aim of this restructuring to provide a gradual natural progression from youth soccer up to the ranks of the professional level. So we know we played against a Minneapolis city has played against a development Academy. U S soccer got it right. They went down to the youth levels and they created the development academies where the cream does rise to the top and they play against each other. They play interstate against each other. There is a national champion there. They can, the scouting networks can come into those games and and really see the best of the best in theory um, that have already been identified to further progress them into that. Yeah. Isn't there a lot of criticism still that that's not good enough that like, there's still this pay to play model that's um, affecting, especially Hispanic and African-American people from, from really getting into into soccer the way that um, that they that they do in other countries, yes, and that's <clears throat> excuse me that's heavily hit in this study as well is that <clears throat> the pay to play model does stunt the growth of 
youth progression into the into professional soccer. Um, but I think the one key thing that was noted here is the creation of a professional U19 level. Oh. So we have this development academy that produces the, the talent. And, you know, even outside of the, the development academy, you'll have the diamonds in the rough that bubble up through just general club soccer. Yep. Or even just recreational soccer that in one way or another get identified and they get pushed into this funnel that goes into, uh, you know, our national system from under 14 all the way through to the the top team. Um, But where the gap is, is that after they turn 18, the next natural progression for players is if you're not already identified by an academy, you go play college soccer. Mm -hmm. So noted in here is that um, collegiate soccer, which has played such a prominent role in keeping the game alive in the United States, especially through the lean years. So he does note that it, it got us as far as it probably could um, when there was really no professional league there. We'll continue the role of providing student athletes with an avenue to test their soccer skills. However, since it's not the collegiate system's job to produce professional players at the highest level, we must implement this system, the under 19 system designated to do just that. Meanwhile, all the scholastic soccer, both high school and collegiate, will continue to provide an important avenue where college, uh, where college students and those who postpone professional soccer careers until after their formal education can compete nationally. So it's not saying that college soccer is the problem, but what it's saying is, is that it's not the answer. Right. If, and no other country has that as an answer. We need to create a, we need to create a second path that allows for those that are – very serious to as you know like like we've talked about it before there are guys that even even players that have played or play for minneapolis city that they they've gone to college to play ball because it was the avenue it's the only step they could take right right you know you look at you look at someone like duncan who goes to ucla because they recruited him and because there's really no other option for him like that seems like the best option right now right because we don't have that step between youth youth top level development and professional development where yep. other countries 17 18 year olds are playing with first team soccer oh yeah and there's nothing wrong with that and yeah they might not get a lot of playing time but they're training in their professional environment they're getting their minds and their bodies right for the game well yeah even the premier league teams and the uh, and just english teams in general have not only you, they have U23 teams, they've got U17 teams, they've got, you know, that's all, of course, part of their own team developmental academy, but, like, that path to playing in in that just out of high school and, and college age is very, very prominent. Exactly, and and we just don't have that. But let's let's talk a little bit about, you know, what this blueprint for success to create this dream team was. So, as we noted, it was 11 kind of steps um, <clears throat> Not in any particular order, but I believe they. When you when you hear them, you'll know what we should be doing in order. So, yep. number one, create a steering commission, and this would be un, uh, ind- individuals who are also unbiased that can come together and help make decisions for U.S. soccer. Don't know if that was fully fully brought into the fold, but we do know that there are more like minds that are involved now. Um, whether it's former coaches and players, it's it's people who went through the system and know how fractured and broken it is, and they're providing their input input on how to fix it. 
Number two is the national technical structure. So that's creating a style of play and a tech from a technical standpoint that can be taught throughout all levels, whether it be the grassroots or all the way up to the full team. Number three, strategic plan for player development. I do not feel that, that was done. Nope. I, I feel like that is like we fell down there and we know that by look who we trotted out yesterday against Trinidad and Tobago. We trotted out uh, such an age parity um, gap in talent where we have clearly the best player on the field for us is 18 or 19 years old. Mm-hmm. And then we, and our, our goalkeeper is, is you 38. Know, 38 pushing 40. Um, and you know, some of the mistakes that I, th- I think he made on, 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 on the night, maybe a younger, more identified talent could have just athletically made some of those saves. There you know? is, um, you're exactly right. And we'll talk about this in a bit when we talk about short term, but there are a number of players that are 30 and older, and there are the only other players of note really are 20 to 24. Right. So they'll be in the next World Cup cycle, since we missed out on this one, they won't have the opportunity to develop internationally at a high level until nope. they're pushing 30 themselves. So we really fell down with that player development piece. Yeah. Um, the next was creating a national competi- uh, competition system for America. That I don't think was really that important. Um, we have that. We have it at the MLS level. We have it at the NPLS level. We don't have it at the high school level. We have it at the college level. So it's sprinkled in there already. Um, I think it was just kind of paying more attention to it as a recruitment tool for player for player identification, which goes to the number five, which was create a national scouting network. I know we've done that. Um, like Tony Sana, for example, was involved in the scouting network for the Midwest and for Minnesota um, through U.S. soccer um, as being a past player and being kind of on that steering commission. So that has been done. Number six has also been done, the creating the U- U.S. National Premier Academy system. We've already talked about that, that, that at length. <clears throat> as has been the youth interstate championships. We know that from the development Academy. We know it through state cups and regionals and, and national championships that, that is created for the clubs that qualify for it. Um, number eight, creating again, that youth 19 pro league, which we have not done um, really outside of college and high school soccer. That next step for those guys is playing for people like us who we can, you know, we can joke about how we're, um, you know, we're professionally amateur, but, um, you know, we're the next step for some of those players. Uh, number nine, community development programs, grassroots soccer. We know that's there. Uh, number 10, coaching education, not necessarily our strong point. We don't have the volume of qualified coaches no. to develop our younger talent. You, and you, well, not even that, but we don't have the volume of coaches that can, we don't have, we don't have a network of coaches that can step in and continue to develop and properly utilize our professional talent right exactly and and knowing um and and that kind of goes to the last point with which is the creation of international programs um and the example that's in this study which i won't get into at length is basketball how accepting are other countries of americans coming in to teach the game of basketball to kids and and young adults they love it they love love the nba there's not a reciprocation on the soccer end where it's acceptable in in foreign cultures to have 
an American coach, you know, back in 98, it was almost non-existent. It's a little more prevalent now, but creating these programs where <laughs> there's like a job share, right? And, Ameri- and Well, any American abroad is on a short leash. Right, if exactly. Bob Bradley is any example. Right. So we don't have that sharing of, of knowledge and, and training. And, you know, I go back to like when I was a, a youth soccer player, you know, once a year – you know, a handful of kids would get selected to go to the U.S. coaching um, uh, seminar, yep. and like Ajax would come in and run a session, and like I got, I was able to go, uh, I got selected to go to that when I was twelve, um, down in Cincinnati to like be the players that roll through this training session. So it was like it was there, but it was only like once a year for like a hundred coaches, and you're like. There, there's more than a hundred teams that you know, that, so yeah, should be doing this. Yeah, so it's like, are you gonna get like the one guy who goes from from Minnesota who goes and learns all this stuff is like, oh, this is awesome, and how how much is that gonna disseminate down into the other coaches in the state? It's not gonna happen, right? So, um, so that was that that was the plan. That was the eleven point plan. Um, you know, to get a little bit further into this, um, the one thing was about player identification that I wanted to call out because I feel like it's, it was so important that we did we're that. Talking about, we, you're talking about scouting, basically, right? Yes, about, about scouting. We fell down so hard on the identification of players. So Carlos mentions that the correct vision is not about identifying a single star once in a while, but building from grassroots level until the U.S. is producing a much higher skilled and competitive-wise average player. Right. By raising the average yardstick, we'll be able to see more consistent results at a higher level because the average talent of the U.S. team across the board will rise dramatically. So, holy shit, that's not new news, right? No. You have more of more qualified player base to choose from. You can build a game plan to go out and get a result in Trinidad or get a result in a World Cup. You know, you don't have to rely on the same old guard. Um, to do that and hope um, that the same person yeah exactly they hope the, the you know hope you can count on Clint Dempsey to score a goal right exactly and then if you if you go from what he mentioned at that grassroots level we talk about as we get into a higher level so inherent in in player identification system is the conviction that once identified these players should have the opportunity to p- play a significant number of full international matches competing at the youth pro national championship um, and in the process, learn what it truly means to earn three points. So we're getting away from that, like everyone gets a ribbon, and you know, <laughs> like yeah, you, know, you get a, you get a snack after the game because you ran around for for you know for an hour or an hour and a half. And then um, the last point on this is along the way, while players learn these important traits, coaches can complete a player's soccer education with schooling in the important areas of technical training professional behavior, fighting and team spirit, all within a day-by-day, week-by-week, year-by-year systematic process. So it's creating that mindset that other countries have that this is your job now. Universally. Universally. Your job is being a soccer player, and you have to learn all of these things. So you can't just athletically go out and beat a team because you can run by them or you're bigger than them. You have to identify all of these traits and really it's mentally as well as physically important to have all of them to build a stronger player. So, I mean, uh, there's, there's a lot in here. Um, 
I, I could get to. I, I don't want to like belabor it so much. Um, but a, a couple more points before we, we kind of get, get to the conclusion of this and talk about a couple other impacts is it's important to understand the most urgent and critical of all these measures to be implemented is to help increase the capacity and ability to train coaches, players, and other personnel who support soccer in America. So it just puts a bow on all of it. We're either focused on the single talent, the once-in-a-generation player like Donovan or Pulisic that we're like, we can just throw a bunch of athletic guys around them and we don't need to teach them anything new and they'll just go win us games. <coughs> we cannot do that anymore. It has to end. We have to identify larger pools of players, educate the coaches, and, and provide training atmospheres where it becomes less a game and more a job. And that's unpopular because soccer is supposed to be fun. But I believe that if we do all of this, soccer will still be fun. You know, it's never fun to lose. But if you lose and you play good soccer, it's okay. And, and as a country, we're not okay with that. Like yesterday we lost and played bad soccer. If we threw out our hearts for 90 plus stoppage and we lost two to one to a, a, a team that we would think is um, far superior to us, it would have been like we went down fighting, but instead yeah. it's like the whole thing's broken, fix it all. Well, like that's, it's not, you know. That's why it felt okay at the last World Cup where we were kind of struggling, but you know we we came out and got a pretty good result, couple good results, the win and the and the draw against Portugal, and then uh, end up losing a, a real good game to to Belgium, who is not an awful team. But like you said, like this isn't this is a bad team losing to another bad team playing bad soccer. Sure. So I'm going to end this real quick with um, in the end of this um, this in this study, there was some interviews done with um, people involved in soccer. And I'm going to fly through these and you're going to start hearing some consistent themes. Uh, it's not about denying the obvious. It's about challenging the status quo. It's not about blame. It's about making changes. It's not about short term fixes. It's about creating long term solutions. It's not about parity. It's about making the cut. So let's yeah, I mean, let's talk about those short-term fixes that that should be made, and then we'll move into to some long-term stuff. I mean, in, in the short term, we've got to we got to we got to think about the the money mm-hmm. <laughs> that's right. being lost, right? Right. The marketing like, dollars lost on U.S. Fox, not making the World Cup. Fox is... bought the World Cup for however many billion dollars, basically. Right. And uh, you know that their their viewership is is has just fallen off a cliff. Well, right, and you look at NBC Sports and how pissed off they made people by having cable subscribers pay additionally to get games where they were free last year. You know, it's like, man, those those guys really took it in the nose on that one. Yep. Um, but the marketing dollars, like Nike, how much are they losing because people aren't going to be buying that new kit and traveling to Russia? Yeah. You know, and it, it was noted in in this study that you know even back in 1998. Regardless of how good the United States was, they were the most traveled country. Meaning, well, we have they're the like to do it. They're like the Wisconsin Badgers of of you know of college sports. Like the Badgers play in the Rose Bowl, Pasadena is just full of people from Wisconsin. Yeah, and 
United States goes to. I mean, yesterday even there was a thousand people that went to that game yesterday, and it, it looked look like, like it. it. Well, I mean, they only showed one side of the field, but <laughs> still, like a thousand people to go to a World Cup qualifier. That's like it seems to me absurd. Yeah. But out of that, a thousand was like three hundred Americans who went on a midweek game to the Port of Spain in Trinidad and Tobago in the rain and like weird flooding field issues and like they went and they traveled to it. That's non-existent in in Russia. Right. Like you might get the people who bought early tickets who are going to try to sell them on the aftermarket now because they don't want to go. They don't want to go potentially see like, you know, um, Wales play against Ireland. They're, you know, they're, they're, there's no there's no vested interest. So right. marketing dollars totally lost. I think another short-term impact Nate is there's really no plan um, right now, they can talk about there's like we're gonna we're gonna take a deep look at this and and we're gonna come up with fast solutions. There's literally an election for the head of USSF in like two months. Yeah, there's so, nobody's gonna even think about this until. Right. So Sunil, who's in charge right now, who is like, if I were him, I would just resign because yeah. like there's no way he should be embarrassed. Yeah, that you he should be embarrassed. There's no way on God's green earth that. People are going to be like, oh, yeah, let's reelect that guy, you know, <laughs> and there's no way within two months he's going to be like, you should elect me because I have the answer. Like, listen here, asshole. You have no answer. Like, you're done. Well, um, what, are the ter- <laughs> what are the term limits on that? Um, I believe it's eight year cycles. So you get two World Cup cycles. Oh, OK. Um, much like some of the coaches get kind of two year two year deal. So yeah. um, the next short term piece is the players. So oh. what? What you hear about, and we talked about briefly when we were talking about the study, was um, <clears throat> like the identification of talent. So yeah. after after the seventies, when soccer was big here, you and and you know there was some some success of growing the game. Players born in the nineteen eighties was kind of the sweet spot. So the end of the seventies, you get you got your players like you know Tab Ramos and Eric Winalda, and you know. Uh, Claudio Reyna, those guys grew up, uh, and Tony Sana, those guys grew up in when soccer was like, it, it was structured and it was popular and, and there was an outlet to do it. Mm-hmm. And then the 80s group were people like myself, um, and I'm not throwing myself in the ring like these other Just guys. Just your generation. <clears throat> my generation, Landon Donovan, Bobby Convey, Demarcus Beasley, like we, those players, um, John Kyle O'Brien. Man. Yeah, screw that guy. Um, <laughs> John O'Brien, um, who was really the the first player to go abroad and and from a youth perspective and train with Ajax and and it showed <coughs> outside of his his um, injury history, like when he was on the field, he was the best technical player we probably have ever produced up until Pulisic. So the 1990s born players should have naturally taken that leap with the opportunities they were given, and they completely shit the bed. So. We did not create a consistent crop of natural torchbearers from the 70s group to the 80s to the 90s to the 2000s. Yeah. So now we're in the, the mid, like early to mid 2000s from an from a age group perspective, and we have to start over. So the 1990s group really fucked us. Um, and what it just did was it further stunted the group of players that currently are from 20, or 17 to 22 which is right now I think our strongest group of players. Well, and here's, here's the thing, and this is you're you're sort of right, sort of not. I think if when you talk about who who the next generation, who are we going to see in 4 years on this team? 
John. We're going to see Christian Pulisic. We're going to see Bobby Wood. And and we'll probably see a 31-year-old Josie Altidore. Right? Well, I mean, and DeAndre I, I, Yedlin. I'm sorry. DeAndre Yedlin as well. I, I get to that when we talk about our long-term impact, Nate, which right. we'll get to in a little bit. But, yes, there are some players. But, but Jeff Cameron's. It. That's Jeff it. Cameron, Jeff Cameron, I thought was probably our best central defender, and he didn't even play. He's and gone. He looked furious. Yep, yeah, he's gone. Dempsey's gone. Fail Hopper's gone. Like these are all names. Beasley's gone. Names that you've heard before. Howard's gone. Guzan's gone. Ramondo's gone. Which means now we don't have another goalie. We have zero goalkeepers. Right? We have zero goalkeepers that have that top level experience. Um, Jermaine Jones is already gone. Dax McCarty. Dax Dax McCarty's gone. Like. We just don't, you know, and even Josie's like, he's going to be in his thirties. You don't think, you don't think we're going to identify another way to win games without him in the next in four years. I hope to God we do four years. Right. I mean, if we follow the script of the, the project 2010 here, we would have already identified six of them. So, I mean, you know, so but, what we, what it means is in the short term, we do what I, what I have been advocating. And I think I advocated the last time we talked about this after, um, is is we got to cut this dead weight, man? Like, there's no, mm-hmm. there's there's no way we can we can compete on an international level when you're trotting out uh, Benny Philharbor as one of your as as one of your better options. That's insane, right? His time has gone. Like, it, it is completely gone. And Tim I mean, the Ream? next like you got to be kidding me, right? Uh, Wondolowski? Like, are, are we are we not done with that experiment after how long? Like. Like, come on! It's 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 really a joke. And I, so, you so couple, I mean, we what are we advocating for scorched earth here? I, yeah, I think so. Okay. I, I think I, I think you. it's um it's not total total napalm. It's like maybe dropping some strategic bombs. Yep. Okay. Um, but the next point from a short term impact is what kind of coach do we really need, and are they even available, like, to fix this? Or or do they, like, or, or do they want to touch the poison that is U.S. soccer at this point? Right. I mean, we're just going to, I mean, I actually, I, I'm one of the people who like doesn't blame Bruce Arena at all for this. It's like, he kind of came in and was like, if you make the World Cup, you should. And if you don't, we kind of just threw you into the process, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, I don't really blame him, but like, who who's the next guy going to be? Like, and you throw all these names around and you're like, well, we should get Thomas Turchill, who's out of contract from Dortmund. And you're like, yeah, that guy's great, but he he developed a professional team structure where it's totally different. And, you know, like it's, it's more, it's a different type of job and maybe he's good, but, or people are like Roberto Martinez is doing great things with Belgium. I could coach Belgium to a world cup final, like with all the talent that they have. Oh my God. Right. You know, like (laughs) it's like Roberto Martinez could barely take like Wigan and, and Everton and like do anything with them beyond like maybe, when you give him Aiden Hazard and uh, Lukaku and even yeah. fucking Fulani, like yeah, <laughs> like you're gonna right? be okay, <laughs> right? So it's like what we're we gonna do there. Um, and then our greatest player in a generation, like Pulisic, yeah. it, he has to wait now a full World Cup Cup cycle just to get a shot at making a World Cup, and even that might not happen next cycle, right? Because we don't know we don't know what's gonna happen. I think so. I think the difference do, there, the difference there, for me is that at least he's playing at a very high level constantly. Right. He's playing, and, well, it totally you know, shows for the number one team in Germany at this point, I think. Right. And, uh, yeah. and he's, he's looking amazing. Like, can you imagine what he's going to look like in four years? 
Let's hope he has an opportunity to play in the World Cup. Yep. Um, and then our federation it was on the rise. Um, like it was on the rise, but we're going in the opposite direction. So Panama is getting good. You know, like Mexico is always going to be there. Yep. Um, you know, Honduras is what it is. But it's like every player in our federation in other countries, outside of like the Grenadas and the teams that everyone beats the shit out of. Um, even though those, game. yeah, even those teams are kind of upping their game. So what are we going to do where we were the top dogs for such a long period of time or in the top dog kennel? Now we're like completely back down to the bottom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then short term, Nate, do we open up project 2010 and hit reset? Like, you know, we talked about scorched earth, but like Iceland did it. Iceland's the size of like Minneapolis. Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Germany did it. Holland is going to, you better believe that they've already gone back into the archives on how they've hit reset in the past and they're just going to modernize it and update it again. And they're going to be more successful than us. And they're small too. Because so they're going to be serious about it. Yeah, they're going to get serious about it. So short-term impacts are, are massive, I think. I think the big difference, at least in how I see how other countries would treat the situation that we're in and how we're going to treat it is that for other countries, it's not about the money. But here in in the United States, soccer is is one hundred percent about the money. It's about capturing the growing demographic and how do we profit off of that? At least in my in my mind. And there are a number of people who really love soccer, um, who want to grow the game here, but they're not the ones that are that are bankrolling everything. And right. so and so the the trick is is that someone like Iceland who has nothing to lose, someone like Germany who, you know, they've got nothing else but soccer, same with Netherlands, like shit, they'll they'll wipe the slate clean and start over because it's the most important sport in their country. For us it's like uh, you know, if you can keep making money on the MLS, let's just uh, let's just do that and hope the the the, the national team works out. Right. So let's let's talk a little about long-term impact, Nate. Yeah. What's um, this going to look like in 4 years? <clears throat> so the number one thing that I that I want to bring up is we just further embarrassed ourselves when we already had little street cred around the around the game and how long is it going to take if ever for us to gain that respect back? Yeah. Who's going to take a risk on a on signing an American player? Well, who's going to who has dual citizenship going to be like, "You know what? I'm going to go I'm I'm going to go to the United States instead of Germany, where I've played youth international soccer with. Like, yeah, we lucked out with some of those guys. Yeah, we, and you know why we lucked out with some of those guys is because we had a German in charge who was a great recruiter of, mm-hmm. of players. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's one. Do we really, two, do we really feel like we can actually compete in this game? Like, it, are, can we be honest with ourselves? Like, is this for us? You know, like, are, are, we, are we okay with... <laughs> is this for us? Yeah, are we okay with having success in other sports and the, and the random being good at soccer once every decade is is that okay yeah like i mean go back to like 2002 we barely miss out on the semifinals of the world cup probably covered by like a third of the country on the news and then yesterday we don't make a world cup and it's everywhere yeah because you know people expect better out of america yeah America. Um, the next one, there's no stopgap that we have that um, to be accepting that this could be a multi-year negative spell 
for players and results. Like, there's no stopgap in place that will say, like, we'll be okay. It's more going to be, like, you need to be accepting of the fact that we're going to suck for a little bit. And that's <laughs> that's <laughs> – yeah, that's okay. Like, well, and that's you know what though, I like that better than than saying, well, let's let's try. To, don't forget, we let's put mixed disc root out there again. And uh, Sasha question, right? And just the answer. See, you know, well, it'll it'll be good enough. I'd rather suck for two for a year or two and develop the players than than limp along with thirty some year old has-beens. Right, and the positives though, Nate, are is we actually do have the time to do things right. This isn't like two and three World Cup cycles where we've missed, where it's right. then it's like total scorched earth and we just never compete internationally again. <laughs> we just call it quits, <laughs> cash out. Um, but our next group of young players, like our under-17s, under um, that currently lead their World Cup group um, going into the last round of pool play, are, yeah, yeah, are yeah. Re- they're crushing. They're really, they're really good, Nate. And that's why I talked about like that, that player from 17 to 22 really needs to be our focus now. So when we when we go into friendly matches, you know, because we're going to get to a point where we're, we're going to be gearing up towards the, uh, next summer, and teams like teams that qualified want to play against other. They have to they have to play friendlies to get their their feet under them after a long um, club season. Yep, that's the time where we just say like, "Hey, seventeens and twenty twos, uh, it's yours. Go get why, the experience. Why not? Right." Why not? I mean, literally nothing to lose. Nothing to lose, and then it gives us uh, a chance for us to see what a striker like Josh Sargent, who was recently signed by Verde Bremen when he turns eighteen, like delicious. Like, what's he? What What's he gonna do? You know, when he's kind of thrust into this, mm-hmm. and it's not. Yeah, we're, we might get beat around a little bit, but when when he hits twenty six, twenty eight, the benefits of knowing what to expect and that mindset of being a professional and, and being a full international that was talked about in that, in the study I talked that I mentioned is far outweighs the negatives. Yeah. So, and you know what, John, that's when you throw, like, that's the age where you take the MLS players that are, that are young and, and semi attractive on the, on the world stage and thrust them out there and, and like the Eric Palmer Browns and stuff and say like, you know what, if you think you can compete, go compete. You know, we're putting you out there with the with our best kids against the best players in the world, and we expect you to lead them. You just kind of brought up a point that I I didn't make yet, where we go into the Gold Cup, which is kind of our our federation's kind of big tournament. Yeah, and unless it's a World Cup cycle year, we like let the worst players in the country play in it. Like why it's, the it's, fuck? It's, why the fuck do we do that? It's just a handout. Why do we do that? It's just saying like this isn't important to us, but every other year it's important to us. So then we'll try. No, we need to be going out and trying every single time. Like I can't believe I, I didn't even mention that. But that kind of goes <laughs> to my the last point here that I have on long term impact is minus corruption and letting the current members stick around. Um, I really do feel that we can change this and actually kind of kind of quickly. <clears throat> get back on a, on a positive course, not fix it, but get on the right course and build towards competing in the world. But it, it, it has to be done right. Like we cannot cut corners, like just throwing away a gold cup where there's valuable international experience there yeah. to be had by younger players that need it by just trotting out like Wondolowski, 
You know, like fuck no, that. Exactly. If we do that again, I'm done. Like I'm just I'm done. I'm I'm gonna start cheering for Canada. Yeah. I'm done. <laughs> John, I, I'm 100 behind you, and I think that that's that's kind of the the key point that that I want to make is that this is the perfect opportunity for United States soccer to cut ties with like like we've talked about a little bit of the dead weight that is the roster full that is just there to fill rosters with with professional players that we pull out of the MLS and and move towards actually developing young talent and then taking the young talent that we have developed the guys like Bobby Wood who who is fairly exciting to watch or or another guy like um you know DeAndre Yedlin who's playing at a fairly at an okay level, you know, Darlington Nagney, who we like to watch. And and you know, as those guys get older, then they become the the veterans and I'm fine with that. But we need we need to find new young guys to replace the uh Jeff Ariolas of the world. Or Paul oh, I'm sorry, Paul Ariolas of the world. I don't even know his goddamn name. Uh, <laughs> one of my one of my buddies the just Juan, calls the, one of my buddies calls him just the nip. The, the nip, right? Juan <laughs> Juan Agadelo. Why is this guy playing on the national team? Yeah. Uh you know, the I get that you want to give lip service and give playing time to to MLS players, you know, the ultimate American soccer product playing in the MLS, but you got to move on. We got to we got to move on and we have to we have to hold ourselves to a higher standard and we have to get the get these kids that are like you said 17, 22 just coming up, just throw them in the deep end and see who sticks because got there to. are a shit ton of them. Yep, got to. I don't, and you know what? We I think we went into length, folks. Thanks That's for sticking lot. with thanks for sticking with us, but we did a deep dive Nate. We yeah. We didn't just complain. We talked about how things used to be, how they should have been, and what we think needs to happen. So so deep, and I hope your asses are all asleep. Uh, <laughs> but let's get back to Minneapolis City or uh, Stegmans. Oh, yeah, Minneapolis City. All Stegmans, right, sweet. Stegmans, if you will. Um, City is playing a game this month. Uh, remember, they are not eliminated <laughs> from their tournament. Um, well, kind of. Yet. Stegmans has a game, yeah. really. And it is only 11 days away. It is on October 22nd, which is a Sunday. We are playing aurora borealis in the u.s open cup qualifying round uh it the game is in aurora at 1 p.m and to throw a little uh little tasty sauce on that for listeners yeah um i hope this isn't going to come off the wrong way but in a a a pre-match friendly last sunday uh the minneapolis city slash stegman's gonna be put together beat vslt six to one the vslt the vslt did we have to break anyone's leg in order to beat them (laughs) Uh, no, no, there were, there was no torn MCLs. Uh, <laughs> finished actually the game, finished the game with a full 11 men. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> everyone, everyone who started the game ended the game. So, excellent, um, excellent. but yeah, so we, we, um, we've been playing some friendly matches with them because, um, from what we've heard from our, our little bird network, that um, Aurora is going to be a similar type team. So, um, what better way to, to get ready for that than play our crosstown frenemies in VSLT. But yeah, six to one beat them last week, played good soccer. They, they played well too. They, um, they had a couple chances. They just didn't, didn't, uh, didn't put away, but we put ours away. So that's encouraging. You and your little birds. Who's looking good, John? <laughs> um, actually, you know, who's looking, looking pretty dangerous is Barnetum from, yeah. uh, our, uh, from our twin stars, uh, group. That's what He's Charlie like, was saying. 
He's looking good. Um, Miles um, Norville, who Trey brought in the mix, who was uh, his his center back partner at Shattuck for a few years, looks good. Um, thought uh, Ryan Camerata from Stegwins looked yeah. good. Um, you know the Brown brothers looked looked good. Timmy Wills was fighting up there. Um, yeah, Charlie was looking good. I mean, everyone everyone played good. Good. Um, everybody. They're buzzing. Buzzing. Yep. <laughs> buzz, well, buzz, buzz. One more time. The game is October 22nd uh, versus Aurora Borealis at 1 p.m. That is in Aurora at Ohio Moose Sports Complex. That is in Moose Heart, Illinois, not Aurora, I guess. It's in Moose yeah. Heart. Uh, John, are, are, is there a bus going down? Um, You know, logistics are still being figured out. But right. speaking of buzzing, Nate, go buy Summit. That's right, because <coughs> we're buzzing. Well, that's all for tonight's show. Uh, thank you, as always, to our sponsor, Summit. Uh, they've helped us fuel our fire, and they're doing it for one more year, and we Welcome love them for it. Get on down to your bar or liquor store and grab yourself some Summit. Minneapolis City memberships for 2018, they're available. You should get them. They're only $50, and that's for a limited time. It's going to get you a ticket to every home game in 2018. Uh, any home U.S. Open Cup games that we might end up drawing, who knows? Never know. You yep. never know. Um, definitely the 2018 member scarf a member card. I feel like something else. Oh yeah. A vote on, on the upcoming kit for the 2018 season. And of course, importantly, a place at the table in soccer Valhalla, make it happen. This is the cheapest it's going to be. Of course, the price always goes up uh, after the holidays head to MPLSCitySC.com and check it out. Memberships make a great present for you and everyone, you know, yes. Cheapest ticket in town folks. Mm Mm-hmm. We love to give back, and we need the help and support of the people. You are the people. And if you're looking to align yourself with a fine group that loves to give back, you're in luck because we are that club. We're a 501c3 that does good on and off the pitch. And, of course, every donation is tax deductible. Consider giving to the club that gives back. If you want to get a hold of us, we have made it easy. You send a note on Twitter at the People's Pitch or through email mcscpodcast at gmail.com. All questions, comments, and concerns are, of course, welcome. Feel free to rip us for any uh, <laughs> anything we've said tonight that you don't agree with. I'm sure we didn't give. No way, man. This is what we got to do. We didn't. I, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna predict that there will be people that say we didn't tickle the the pro well pro rel balls enough. Man, uh, that was with... maybe by design because. <laughs> That has nothing to do with our national team structure. But anyways. Eh, eh, yep. I, I'll quit. So anyway, uh, you can always hit the club up at MPLS. <laughs> Talk pro with them. SC uh, on Twitter. And that is all for this week. We're going to let the house band go get them. Tiger, take it away, as usual, with We Live With The Pines. Thanks for being our people, people. I am Nate. That is John. And we are peacing out. Hoof scored a goal this week. Hoof scored a goal this week.